Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Patty James, chair of the club's nutrition, food, and wellness member-led forum and chair of tonight's program. It's my pleasure to extend a special welcome to any new club members who are here this evening. And we know that you will enjoy your membership and look forward to seeing you often. At this time, please turn off your cell phone and other noise-making devices. Our next program for the um, nutrition, food, and wellness is on June 26th with Anna LaPay, and it is entitled How You Can Change the Future of Food, obviously a very important topic. I hope to see you all there. So you may register for this program online at and others at commonwealthclub.org or by calling the club's 24-hour reservation line. Questions will be asked by the audience at the end of the program, as I mentioned, and we are recording today's program, so make sure that your cell phones are off. So it is now my pleasure to introduce Ileana Masonette. And by the way, before I finish the introduction, I have asked her if I completely butcher any words here tonight, that she correct me in real time. So, you know, because that, that could very well happen, but I will, I will do my best. But Ileana Masonette is the first Puerto Rican food columnist in the continental United States. Her San Francisco Chronicle column, Cocina... Boricua, ah, yeah, yeah, was dedicated to safeguarding traditional Puerto Rican recipes and exploring food throughout the Puerto Rican diaspora. Um, Ileana's cookbook, which is, you'll see it outside, it's absolutely beautiful. I spent the weekend pouring over it and I already picked the next recipes I'm going to be making. But her cookbook, Diaspora, Diasporican, Diasporican. Diasporican. I had the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Provides um, a visual record of Puerto Rican food, ingredients, and techniques. She shares deeply personal recipes, some even passed down from her mother and grandmother, that trace the island's flavor, traditions to the Taino, um, Spanish, African, and even United States cultures that created it. Shaped by geography, immigration, and colonization, these dishes reflect the ingenuity and diversity of their people. So welcome, Ileana. We're very happy you're Thanks here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so begin by telling us what is a diaspora, a diasporic, I said it the wrong syllable again, diaspor Eakin. <laughs> I'm like, I'm waiting. Yeah, no, you, thank you. Yes. What is, explain that. Um, basically, a diaspora Rican is just me. It's Puerto Ricans who were not uh, born in Puerto Rico that live here stateside. But even the ones who were born there, once you come here, you live, start living your life here, you're basically already a diaspora Rican. Yeah. And if I recall from your book, there's five and a half million? There's 5.8 now. Okay. It was 5.5 when I started writing it. Um, Officially, when I started writing in 2014, and now as of I think 2020, it's 5.8. Something to do with the hurricane? Definitely. Okay. Okay. Definitely. The first one and the second one. Yeah. We all remember those. I'm sure they're still cleaning up after all of that. They're still cleaning up from Maria in 2018. Yeah. Okay. Um, so before we discuss your book, would you please tell us about? The, the history, the, the melting pot that is the cultural cuisine of Puerto Rico? Um, I mean, I necessarily wouldn't call it a melting pot because to say melting pot means that things kind of happen like organically, but it's more of like a mashup where things are kind of forced together, okay. you know? Mm-hmm. But like even in the book, like I think there are things in there that people didn't anticipate. Like they already anticipated the traditional Puerto Rican food which has had since like, you know, the 1500s to kind of meld together from the indigenous people, which are the Taino, the Spanish, the other Europeans, and, um, you know, African. But what I think people didn't realize when I wrote the book, I mean, people in Puerto Rico realized it, but a lot of people outside didn't realize it when I wrote about um, like Chinese immigration there. And like when you talk about Mallorcas, which is like a, a pastry recipe in the book that's like a direct descendant from you know um Ashkenazi Jews in Spain 
And a lot of people didn't realize that, you know, and I mean, I probably didn't either, which is why I did the research, you know, and it just comes from because there there is a small but I think mighty Jewish population in Puerto Rico. And they definitely have left their mark, obviously, because the pastries there, that's not, it's a very European thing, you know. And then when you talk about Mallorcas, like the way that they make them. If you go back to in Samaidas, which is what they're called in Spain, like, you know, they use them um, with like pork fat and lard. And then they had to start using olive oil. Like it's just it's the same thing as like every other diasporican recipe where everything is changed to geographic necessity, religious persecution, all that. You know, I found um, something that you wrote in the book, and I, I, this is not what we were originally going to, when I was going to ask it, but it seems <laughs> fitting to ask it now somehow, is that, you know, I was surprised when you wrote in the book that uh, that you can't find a lot of seafood when you go there because most no. of it's exported. Yes. Like, if you, if you do find seafood, it's always going to be on the West Coast, and the West Coast has the largest population of um, American expats. Oh, interesting. Okay. All right. We'll have to think about that. <laughs> so, um, okay. Now, you, you talk about um, colonial reshaping when the U.S. occupied uh, Puerto Rico. And so if you, if you could explain that, uh, how that came about. And then um, I'd love if you, you know, in, in detail, if you would. And then talk about also, I found it interesting that after the United States colonizing Puerto Rico, um, all the agricultural test plots that they came up with. And I know this is a probably a multiple part question, but if you would talk about the first part of colonization and take it from there. So the United States, uh, Puerto Rico was ceded to the United States in the Spanish American war. First it was occupied and colonized by Spain and Spain gave it to the United States. And then almost immediately United States just tried to see all of them, the agricultural stations throughout the island, they have like in Mayaues and stuff like that. They were basically kind of like piloting, testing a bunch of agricultural seeds. They're planning to see what would grow because, you know, it's hot there. So it's kind of like, like an on, you get multiple seasons, you know? So like tomatoes, if you can grow it, it'll grow year round. So you don't just get like one season, you're getting like four seasons of tomatoes. So they basically just tried to like implement programs across the board where they were able to monetize the most out of it. Everything was about monetization. Let's try to make money. Let's see how we can make money. So we're going to try to plant all these things and try to take advantage of the climate. And when did, when did that start? Immediately. Okay. So let's see, like 1898, most of the stations that I talk about and all the information that I have about agriculture, I had to go back because all of the information is old because that's like the most recent information I can get about what everything was grown. Cause if they, if it wasn't successful in growing, they just kind of moved on to something else, you know? So that's why there isn't a lot of information, current information about almost everything that is now imported to Puerto Rico, like avocados and mangoes and plantains. Uh, they're, they're imported? Plantains yeah. are imported? From Dominican Republic. Well, that's interesting. I would have uh, somehow <laughs> assumed that... There are plant there are plants there, you know? Like, my aunt has, like, a plantain tree in her backyard. Mm -hmm. But when you go to where most people are doing their shopping now is Walmart. Oh. You go to Walmart, all that's imported from Dominican Republic or the United States. So 85% now, after Maria, 90% of the food in Puerto Rico is imported. Oh, okay. So let's go back a, a little further at before. The, did Spain really give Puerto Rico to the United States? Who knows? Okay. I mean. And why? It was never theirs to give. Right. But they had it. Okay. All right. So <laughs> here you go. But what about before that all happened? There had to be, you know, like. 300 years ago what what was the do you know what the the original native food would have been what that would they have grown so i talk about that in my book so yeah. the taino indians are 
Arawak that come from Central America. Mm-hmm. South America, Central America. Right. So there are a lot of um, similarities mm-hmm. with like Central American cuisine in the Yucatan. So achote, plantains, uh, a lot of corn, which is weird because Puerto Ricans don't really consume a lot of corn now. They consume a lot of rice and rice is from Africa. Mm-hmm. I think they just kind of I don't know if they forgot about corn, but I think that it was purposely kind of pushed out of the way because it's a lot easier to for individuals to grow than rice. Yeah. So if you're growing, if you're processing and growing more rice, they can make more money off you that way. But those are just kind of things: yuca, corn, achote, and seafood because it's the sea. There were no pigs. There were no cows. There were none of that. Was none of that there. Hmm. Um, what about like farmers markets? Are there any every locale? There are some farm markets there. Okay, and are they trying to keep those original foods alive? Yes. So what's hilarious is that when when I started going as an adult, like without my mom, you know, people, you know, because I don't speak Spanish, so. They would be like, like, oh, like, where are you from? And I'd be like, California. I'm like, oh, there's this great farmer's market up the street. So they already think that yeah. most Californians specifically love a farmer's market. I mean, they're not lying. but right. And it's like a farmer's market, like an old San Juan that focuses on, like, it's an organic farmer's market. Mm-hmm. So everything there is, like, you know, certified organic. Mm-hmm. But there are very few. What there are mostly are just random produce stands on the road from like somebody who grows like avocados in their backyard okay somebody who grows like mangoes or plantains or oranges during the season or canepas during the season you know like i i never think of puerto rico as a place that has seasons because it's just hot like to me it's like hot season all the time but they do you know so if that's i think that has been the way that most people have survived if they can't grow their own food or just these little farm stands that just pop up on the side of the road. And there's so many. Yeah. So tell us about, let's, let's move on and we'll, we'll go back to food later, but let's, let's take a detour back into your own family. Tell us about where you were born, how you ended up in California and how you met your great grandmother that you didn't know you had, you know, tell us about your family history. And then from there, we'll go on to write why you wrote this book, but it would be helpful for everybody to understand your your history. Well, I was born and raised in Northern California. Right. In Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom came here in like 57. She was like three or five or something like that. And um, she didn't speak any English. And, you know, there was like, kind of, it was like during the Cold War era. So it, it was like, if you didn't speak English, then they weren't letting you speak like any language in the school. So, I think for like the first like year or two of her life here, she just didn't speak at all because they wouldn't allow her to speak Spanish um, at school, and she didn't know she just didn't know how to speak English. My grandma didn't know how to speak English. She only had like a third grade education, and she, when she came here, she was like seventeen, you know, with like three kids. So she didn't know how to read. She didn't really know how to write. She didn't learn how to do any of that until I started to go to school because that was asking her like so many questions you know so she would like went back to like adult school and like got her education because i was asking her too many questions and she couldn't answer (laughs) she's like i couldn't keep up with you so there was just you know i had to go to school otherwise i wouldn't be able to communicate with you because they didn't teach me spanish because my mom didn't want me to have the same experience that she had when she got here so you know when we were talking about um you know language being important you know earlier it's like it is and I guess it's like, you know, one of the the reasons why that's like the first thing that they try to take away, I guess. It is. We did a program recently uh, on the cultural relevance of food, and it was a soul food chef, uh, indigenous um, chefs, um, all, all from Oakland, and um, uh, Hispanic chefs. And there was a lot of conversation about language, especially, as we talked about before the program started, especially with the Native American chefs because their language once their language was taken away 
they lost a lot of their culture and their cuisine. But right before we started here, I was asking Ileana about that. And she said, the thing is, everybody speaks Spanish and English. So it's it's not... Um, I, I feel it's like much more important when it comes to like the indigenous people because there's such a... There's not as far as a gap between the generations that didn't speak it. There are much more of their people who... The elders that still speak the language, so it still can be saved and preserved. Taino was our original language; it's already gone. Like Spanish is not our; it's the colonized language. So, yeah, is it? Am I embarrassed I don't speak Spanish? Yes, but at the same time, the damage is already done. Like I don't feel as embarrassed as the people who try to make me feel embarrassed for not speaking Spanish because it's like, yeah, sucker! Like you're pushing the colonizers' language, like. Yeah. If you really want to get that deep, then you should be trying to focus on learning the Taino language, uh-huh. which there are still some elders, a very small percentage that have, you know, a heavy percentage of Taino DNA that still exists in Puerto Rico, and they do know the language. Oh, how? Now, what's the population of Puerto Rico? Right now, it's like a little over a million. Oh, not as many. So as there's more thought. here than there are there. Yeah, that's by far. That's yeah. not by default that's by design yeah and the tainos how many of do you think of of that million oh gosh maybe like five percent okay very small percentage of the mountains okay in the mountains okay i think we all want to go to puerto rico if who who has been to puerto rico that's here oh wow quite a few people Okay, I'm behind the curve here. I've got to get there. So, um, okay, so you've explained a, a little bit about your family and, and growing up in Sacramento. So let's just move forward a little bit to um, to your adult life and how you got into cooking and writing this book. So tell us uh, about you. Uh, well, in 2008, I was living here as a visual artist, and I don't know if anybody remembers 2008, but it was like... A huge market crash. Yes. Oh, I, remember. <laughs> I remember specifically 2008, yes. I just remember being, um, I was doing a show at the mezzanine here on Jesse Street, and the organizer of of the event, of the it's like this big art event that they always had. I just remember the look on his face like before the event, and he was like super stoked. And I just remember him like zooming past us and like the look on his face. I'd never seen a look like that before. And I was like, what is happening? Cause I mean, I've never really had to, I've never had any money to lose money. So I've never experienced that kind of like catastrophe, Mm. but I just remember the look on his face. And then I've, it's been like 20 years and I've never forgotten that look on his face. And then I remember just like that night, like a lot of, it was like, a lot of like frenzied and a lot of people were going home and I just didn't sell anything that night. And I always used to sell. I'm like, what is going on? I felt and saw the shift and it felt like it was immediate. And so I went home and my cousin was a loan officer at the time. And unfortunately she was a part of the reason that all that stuff was going on. And she told me, she was like, you know, I'm packing up and I'm moving to Georgia. And I'm like, have you even been to Georgia before? (laughs) Because we don't have any family down south, like, at all. And she's like, yeah, I got to get out of here. And she, like, she disappeared, like, overnight, you know? And so did my career. So did everybody's money. And I was like, what do I do next? So I spent a year up in the countryside of Auburn in California, which is... Hot. Trump territory. Mm. I mean, you could say hot. I was going to go with Trump territory. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I spent a year up there just cooking, like baking bread, making beans from scratch, like doing all these things. And my friend who I was living with, it was his house. Uh, His grandmother had left him this tiny house up in Auburn, but on a lot of land. And he's like, why don't you go to like culinary school? You like cooking. And I'm like, does that exist? And I was like, okay, you know, like I'll, I'll look into it. And I'd already been reading like, old issues of like gourmet and bon appetit that I was buying at like the thrift store for like a quarter, 50 cents, you know, and reading like, you know, MK Fisher and Ruth Reichel. And I'm like, who are these white ladies? Like they are so ethereal the way that they write, you know, and it wasn't like a writing that I could, I appreciate the writing was beautiful, but none of what they were talking about was like really resonating with me, you know? 
until I in the 2008 was the same year that I came across the Bloomsbury edition of Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. The way he was writing was very much resonating with me because at the time I was like, you know, kind of reading the classics like, you know, Kerouac and Steinbeck and all those kind of raucous dudes. So yeah. And I was like, I'm going to sign up for culinary school. And before you knew it, I was in culinary school. Where did you go? I went to American River College in Sacramento. Our only known alumni that's like famous is Guy Fieri. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's, yeah. So I spent like two years, two, three years in culinary school. And then I knew after doing like your stages that, you know, they make you do like off campus and stuff. I knew that there was no way I was going to be working in a restaurant like the rest of my life, like doing back of the house. And like, there's no benefits. There's no security. There's just no way, you know? And I said, well, I wonder if I can combine this with writing. And I just started writing. Um, well, you're being modest here. One of the people who wrote in her book is Jose Andreas, and you've been. I didn't on come the... till much later, though. Uh, okay, well, let's let's go. Let's move forward then. <laughs> Keep talking. We're interested. That didn't come till much much later. I'm not even sure how. I mean, I probably, I can't remember how we even came across each other. More than likely, it was just me kind of doing my usual like bitching and moaning on Twitter as per usual. Um, and I think I, I was saying. I don't remember what happened, but I he tweeted a response to me, and he said, um, can I see your proposal? And, you know, when you tweet, you kind of just, like, word vomit into the abyss, and then you turn it off, and then you walk away. And so when I came back the next morning, people were like, hello, like, you haven't responded, hello. And I'm like, why is everybody freaking out, you know? And I was like, oh, like, what did I do now? Okay. And then I saw her response, and I'm like, okay, like, I guess I better get this proposal together really quick. And he tried to help me, as, and I appreciate his help, but there was only so much anybody could really do, you know? Like, he was the first person that made something happen, though. Like, a lot of people were offering help, but he was... <laughs> Jose's a really kind of... How do you say it? Like a rare person. You know, there's like dreamers and doers. He's kind of like the rarity that is like both. Like he's a dreamer and a doer. Like whatever he dreams up, he's going to make sure it happens. So I think within like two weeks of him and I talking, he was like, oh, like I got this gig for you in New York. And I'm like, okay, like I'm not going to say no to you. He was like, it pays this much. I'm like, it pays? <laughs> Great. He's like, it pays this much. He was like, and you're cooking for uh, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story rap party. And I was like, eh? <laughs> he was like, you got to get on a flight, like, in two days. Huh? I was like, okay. And I'm just, that's the thing. When you're with Jose, shit moves really fast. Like, if you're not along for the ride, then you're just going to get, I think, pushed to the wayside, kind of. Oh, oh, World Central Kitchen. Jose Andreas. He has the kitchens in every war zone you can imagine. You know, and and wherever there's a disaster, his crews come in Puerto Rico. Well, Puerto Rico was his first, the first place that yeah. he went to cook when World Central Kitchen was founded. That was right. the first disaster zone he came to cook, and he was the first person to come and cook, yeah. period. He was the first person to show up. Yep, yep, no, and he, he cooks for thousands. Right. It is a well-oiled machine, and the fact that he reached out for you, that is kind of a big deal. I think that came from all the time that he spent in Puerto Rico, too, during Maria. Oh, sure. So, you know, because when he reached out to me, this is like in like 2020, 2019, 2020. So this is like a couple of years after he spent, he spent a lot of time in Maria. He spent so much time in Puerto Rico during Maria that he basically wore himself ragged, ended up getting sick and had to go home because he was like with, you know, the National Guard in the trucks, going to, like, the mountains, going to the, you know, the places that were only, you can only cross in, like, a milk carton and a rope, you know, the pulley system kind of a thing. And he was, like, you know, going to those places just to deliver food, you know, but at the time, it's not just delivering food. You're, like, delivering sustenance to people who have absolutely no access to anything, not clean water, not their medicine, not electricity, nothing. Yeah. 
Now, how was it for cooking with, I'm sh sure you signed an NDA, but how, how was it for cooking for Sp Steven Spielberg? What, how did you decide what you were going to cook? Oh, I just made like tiny versions of like traditional Puerto Rican food. So I was like, I want to make pasteles, make a tiny version. I want to make bacalaitos, make a tiny version. It was, it wasn't difficult, you know, but the thing is the cast, it was a lot of Hollywood people there. They don't eat. Oh, oh. They're drinking. Thank God I made a cocktail. <laughs> they don't eat though. Oh. They're like, you know, needle nibbles because I even got um there's like a famous lechonero in the Bronx there and I told Jose I said I want to bring that guy in with me so he can make um like whole pigs, you know, roast the whole pigs and bring it here. I'm like that's like a like it's non-negotiable. I want to have this guy cuz he's like really legendary in New York and in the Bronx. And Jose's like, "Yeah, sure, you know." So you know, the guy came and he like is a construction worker. So, you know, he works really early hours. He made the pig like overnight on his own time. He showed up. He looked, you know, so exhausted because he had roasted that pig all night and hardly anybody ate it. Oh, who, it do you depressing. mind telling me who it was? I, I know somebody in the Bronx who does. Um, His name is Angel okay. and he goes by La Piranha. Okay. Well, I'm thing. sorry. That was disappointing. And I was like, yeah, but the kitchen liked it, though, so. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the kitchen was like, yeah, great food. And weren't you on the Today Show? Didn't I see you on the Today Show? I was on Good Morning America. Good Morning America. Yeah, making empanadas. Okay, well, that was kind of fun, huh? That was fun. Okay. And what, what year was, was all of that in your life? That was last year. Oh, that was just last year. Yeah. But you started the book in 2014. I started the concept in 2014. Okay. That's when the concept started. Because I had created like a little cookbook lit uh -huh. that I was submitting as like, um, so people, you know, as publishers and agents and editors could see what the concept was. So it was like an actual little cookbook lit with photos and everything. Like the same photographer for that is the same photographer that I had for the cookbook lit. You know, my brother-in-law and you know, I did the recipes and, you know, we did the food styling and all that. So it's not that far from that. Okay. But nobody was interested. And, and is Ten, Ted Speed Press your publisher? Yeah, Ted Speed. Okay. Yep. They're Berkeley, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a nice local place to... It's, it's a nice publishing house, right? They do a lot of things. And it's a beautiful book. Has anybody purchased it yet? You have yours. No, it's it's very pretty. There's a lot of interesting... interesting. Uh, and that's my mom's hands on the cover. Oh, it is? Yeah. Oh, I, I want her jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> that's like what she wears like every day. Every day. Too, and that's so. the Puerto Rican flag? That was Yeah, and that was my grandma's bracelet. So. Oh, my gosh. Oh, very nice. Okay, so you told so you told us when you wrote the book, but I mean, what possessed you? Did you really want to get your family's recipes in writing? Okay, all right. Well, yeah, I mean, because you know, it happened. It kind of coincided perfectly because I was in culinary school, and I think I maybe just finished, and I was very much in that kind of ego. Well, when I was in culinary school, I just finished culinary school kind of mode, and um, you know, they don't really they. The curriculum in culinary school is very Eurocentric, yeah. you know, like you might get like Spanish if you're lucky, you know, Mediterranean kind of thing. But, um, you know, it really made me kind of want to focus on Puerto Rican food because I was starting to notice that my grandma was, you know, getting up there in age, even though everyone in my family loves, you know, my grandma's cooking, nobody knew how to cook it. Nobody wanted to take the time to, like, you know, write the recipes or learn the recipes. And I'm like, dude, like, nobody, not even my mom, you know? Like, my mom cooks kind of very, like, um, like more like Americana things, you know, like Hamburger Helper and stuff like that. So I'm like, okay, like, this is bizarre. Like, everyone likes to eat this food, but nobody wants to learn how to cook it. So, you know, I'm going to just, you know, learn because I have watched her, but I need measurements, you know? Like, I'm not... I'm just not like an intuitive rice cooker like that. Like, you know, you pour pour the water, measure with your finger. I can't do that. Like, I need measurements, you know? So, yeah. And and I don't know if, unless somebody's written a cookbook, I don't know if you realize how much work goes into this. You have, especially if you're dealing with a family recipe that somebody just created because it's in their head, and then you have to look at that recipe, you have to come up with the measurements that the home cook 
can follow and stay true to the original recipe. I would imagine you had to make these recipes many yes. times. But also there's a language barrier too for my grandma, you know, oh, because true. she, you know, yeah. when she says, you know, um, you use this much water, like she l literally means just water. Like she's not talking about liquid, you know, like when you use a sofrito, which is a liquid because it has water in it. When she uses tomato sauce, which is a liquid, like all those things add to your liquid. So if you know, if you're doing like this kind of traditional two to one rice ratio, which is everybody has been taught, you're doing two cups of liquid to one cup of rice. But if she says you use two cups of water, okay, I'm using two cups of water plus the water in sofrito, plus the water in tomato sauce, plus the water in olive brine. Well, no wonder all my shit's coming out mushy. Now it's just like this big pot of mush, you know, because what she really means is two cups of liquid. And I did not get that until I actually watched her make it. So you had a pen and paper with you at all times? Oh, yeah. Okay. Did you videotape her? No. I don't really think that, like, camera phones were, like, that big back then. Oh. Like, this is, like, 2014. I definitely didn't have a camera phone. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess so, huh? Time flies. <laughs> Okay. So, um, okay. You've told us about your family and, and the, the, so you grew up, you grew up in Sacramento and you grew up with your mom and your grandma was, you had your great grandma in Philadelphia, correct? Yeah. A lot of family in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. But so here, did you grow up, you mentioned just a moment ago, your mom had created like hamburger helper. Did you grow up with mostly the food of Puerto Rico or mostly sort of a, what did you Puerto Rican food or Cali Rican food, as I think yeah. you say in the book, or I read. Well, I mean, somewhere. I think the Cali Rican thing comes directly from me, but I think it needs kind of like a. Anytime there's, it, I think that type of territory comes with third culture kids. Like it has the a generation has to be missed because now it's a generation that's not in survival mode. Do you know what I mean? So you can kind of like experiment more and kind of branch out, but. The only people that were really cooking Puerto Rican food was, like, my grandma. But, you know, my grandma lived, like, she literally lived on the same road as us, but, like, maybe, like, a half a mile away and what. So it, I could have Puerto Rican food, like, literally every day. And she made Puerto Rican food every day. You know, my mom really didn't cook much. When I was a kid, you know, she would make things that were kind of hot and quick, you know. But then I honestly don't even remember my mom doing much cooking by the time I was like 14. Because she was worked like 12-hour shifts, so I was pretty much on my own. Well, but you had your grandma there. But my grandma was always there. And my grandma stayed. She lived in that same apartment in the same complex like all my life. Well, is she still with us? No, she died in 2015. Oh, I'm sorry. But she made it quite a uh, impression. That's the word <laughs> on you. So that's wonderful. Definitely. Well, I mean, I think she made an impression on everyone that she met. You know, she's very, very like social. Like she loved being around people. I don't really know why. Like she loved partying. She loved drinking. She loved, you know, hanging out with people and cursing people out. And I don't know. She's just very social. Not your thing? No. <laughs> Like, I, at all. Like, when we have parties, like, I would always end up, like, on the second floor, like, kind of somewhere playing, like, a board game or something. Because it was just, like, so overwhelming. <laughs> so, um, other than your, your family, obviously, but where do you find inspiration? I think it's really easy to find inspiration when it comes to food in California. Like, especially if you are a person that, like, likes to be out. I mean, it's so easy to be do outdoorsy stuff here in California, you know. Like, I know that people, when they come here to travel, they kind of get a little annoyed because they're like, what's to do here? We're like, well, you can go to a farmer's market. You can go hiking. People are like, oh, golly, don't you have anything else to do? We're like, okay. So just going from the farmer's market is, I think, enough because when I start looking at ingredients, I'm almost like, I wonder if I can add that to, like, Puerto Rican food. You know, like, I wonder if this would work, you know, or that would work. And most of the time it does. I try not to do that when I'm cooking for Puerto Rican people because they don't like it, you know, but I do it when I'm cooking at home. Give us an example of, of you, you saw whatever the ingredient was and you thought, hmm, and you bought it and what did you go home and make with it? Can you remember? Well, like, 
the funche recipe that's in the book is a riff on shrimp and grits. Like, I literally created it right across the way at the ferry building. It's on page 81. Yeah. <laughs> that's like the first I, one I'm going to make. It's the first place that I ever made it was across the street at the ferry building, literally, um, when it was still Cuesa. And one of the vendors there was called H&H Fish. They're also in the book from Santa Cruz. They just had really crazy, pristine seafood. I'm like, oh, like, you know, I'm like, you guys have shrimp. I have like polenta, which is essentially what funche is. It's just kind of polenta made with coconut milk. But it's a very old recipe. So instead of me using bacalao, which is what you would make with it traditionally, you would make like bacalao, which is like the dried salted codfish. And then you would simmer it with like tomato sauce and sofrito. Sofrito was like an herb base with um, cilantro, onions, tomatoes, peppers. Very kind of summery. And you say that sofrito is like the basis. It's in like every savory app cooking recipe in Puerto Rico. Yeah. So I just took their shrimp and I took our funche and I added sofrito. You're talking about this one, right? Yep. And it's basically like a... What is it called? Uh, shrimp and grits. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, it has uh, chorizo, orange juice, lemon juice. What is saison? Saison, saison. is like an all-purpose Puerto Rican seasoning that has um, achote, oh, okay. which is an, also known as anato seed. Okay. That's from one of our earliest uh, produce, whatever, in Puerto Rico that comes from Central America. Okay. Garlic, cumin, everybody has their own special blend, but it always will will have achote, garlic, cumin, and then some people add onion powder and stuff like that. And what is and then you also in this recipe have sambal, and then in parentheses you say such as sambal, olet. It's just um, it's like the chili garlic version of uh, sriracha. Oh, okay, got it. And then you and then you mentioned the sorrito, and then it's water, salt, pepper. Uh, butter, shrimp, and the funche, which is polenta. Polenta and coconut milk, that's it. Okay, so since, and then you've mentioned other ingredients, and my, where do you find these specialty ingredients? Well, I mean, you can find those at the supermarket. Like, the supermarket sells chorizo. It's probably not the oh, chorizo I, that I would use. It's more the spices or the anchiote. Where do you... Achiote is... Okay. Probably only going to be the only difficult thing that you might find. Yeah. You can find that at all Latin markets, though. But, I mean, even the sambal, they sell that at the supermarket. Oh, okay. But you could also use sriracha. Sriracha's okay. everywhere. Yeah, you know, you go to a rich. diner now, and it's right next to the ketchup. So right. that's yeah. not difficult to find. No. You can find all the ingredients to make sofrito. You can find coconut milk at at the Safeway. Sure. It's the, mostly the... The, some of the peppers, and I don't have those pages. It's so funny that you brought up the first recipe. The only pepper made. that we use now, the diasporicans use, and oh. sofrito is bell pepper. It's bell pepper. Oh, but okay. because we're in California, there's a lot of peppers. I'm like, ha, peppers, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, banana peppers, gypsy pepper, purple bell peppers. You know, like because the or traditional pepper to use is ají dulce, but I can't get those on the West Coast. Like okay. I haven't seen them on the West Coast at all. Now, you talked about cilantro, and then some of your recipes also called for culantro. Uh -huh. What's that? It's like cilantro's punchy cousin. It's very strong. It's much stronger. So I will use the two together, but you don't need to use the two together. Where so if you, you have find that? I've only recently started seeing it at Asian markets that... Um, really only kind of target Southeast Asians oh. because Vietnamese people use it. Oh. So if you go and eat pho, more than likely you will see culantro in your plate. You know, they give you the mint and the bean sprouts and stuff. The culantro will be there. Oh, oh interesting. Okay. So what is your favorite recipe dish in, in the book? Um, probably my mom's mushroom chicken. And I know people get like disappointed by that because it's not the Puerto Rican dish. But I think it's because she doesn't really make it that often on top of that. Okay, I'm almost there. Not we're going to we're going, oh, here's mommy's oh it's very pretty. And and really pretty photograph. Colorful. And it's literally just made with Campbell's cream of mushroom. Oh, it is. <laughs> and soy sauce. Now this isn't what the average person would think of as as a It's as very Americana. It is. Okay. This is this is your mother's. So that's why it's in here, because it's your book. Yep. 
Okay. Uh, so, okay, you like that one. So that's your favorite recipe. And so you just watched her make this. This is, doesn't sound all that difficult. So um, you probably didn't have to make this too many times before you got it just right. Yeah, I did. You did? Frying is not my friend. Oh, okay. Like, I am not a good fryer. I mean, maybe it's because I'm scared to fry. You know, like, I'm, like, the type that, like, drops in the oil, like, runs for the hills, like, one at a time, you know? Yeah. And my mom, she's just, like, her hand is literally in the oil. She's, like. Wow. So I am not great at frying. So I think that was really hard for me to execute was, like, getting the chicken, like, done all the way through, getting it to where it was crispy, you know, all of those things. But I that dish, it takes a lot of patience. Oh. Because you have to, like, you're building all the layers, you know? Like, you have to fry the chicken first, and that takes, you know, time and patience. Then you have to take it out. Then you have to build the roux. Then you have to make the gravy. Then you have to... I don't have that type of patience. Like, I cook everything on high. <laughs> like, you know, people say, bake at 350. I'm like, done. Bake at 450. Yes, I hear 350, but I'm baking at 450. Now, at the beginning of the book, you have a lot of fried dishes in here. And I'm going to completely mess up these bacalaitos. Bacalaitos. Bacalaitos, which is uh, what the heck is a bacaleo or baca? Bacalao. Bacalao. It's salted uh, oh, that's codfish. Yep. Okay, so you can find that. Okay, hold on a minute. No. So you think that that would be easier to find than sazon? Because yeah. sazon... Goya Sazon is literally a Safeway yeah. on the shelf. Okay. All right. I can tell you what's not there. Bacalao. Oh, okay. <laughs> so why would you think that that uh, is easier to attain? Because I thought I saw it. I thought I had seen it at Oliver's Markets. You know, we have the Oliver's Markets that are, I thought I had seen it there. Anybody live in Sonoma County or Marin? Oliver's has some interesting things there. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm going to have to go look now and then maybe eat crow the only time i ever see it is at italian markets oh okay like molinari's like very specific italian markets or like portuguese markets. portuguese markets okay but like outside of that or like maybe like a specialty market that you know is for like the caribbean demographic okay but other than that Can't find i've it. never seen it at a store so empadilla empanadillas empanadillas versus Empanada? Thank you. Explain <laughs> the difference. Question mark? Yes. There is no difference. It's the same thing. It's just, you know, Puerto Ricans call their empanadas either empanadillas or pastelillos. And really, what I've come, what I have seen with my own eyes is that it really depends on what part of the island you're from and what they call it. One is, you know, kind of... um describes the dough that's closed with like the fork tines. The other one describes the pastry dough that's closed and like the rope method that a lot of people are already familiar with. And then there's even like another way to make it the same pastry where they just kind of fold it like a letter and they call those tacos. So if you ask for tacos in Puerto Rico, you're not getting the tacos that you think you're getting. (laughs) I went to the store yesterday because you have a lot of plantains in this book. And and um, Safeway usually has them, actually. But um, I didn't want to drive to Oliver's. But, but they didn't have them yesterday or I would have had plantains. That's surprising because they usually do have plantains. I know. Plantains. I, I thought yeah. I usually. So I thought, well, shoot. The one time I want to buy them, they weren't there. <laughs> so tell us your favorite plantain recipe. Well, actually, I would like to know a little bit about more. I know they're, well, explain what a plantain is exactly. A uh, plantain is... It's like a starchy banana, you know, like it's not, it is and is not like the bananas that we know, which are the Cavendish bananas. Like they're more like, they're treated like a vegetable. And what's wild, I don't even understand why they're not, I mean, I probably do understand, but I don't understand why they're not grown in Puerto Rico because it's like as such an essential part of the Puerto Rican diet. Like they have figured out how to make, like a million recipes with just the same plantain. Yeah, desserts to like um, uh, like a sandwich, but the plantain is, the instead of bread, it's a plantain, savory. So um, I think that would be a fun thing to kind of experiment with. What's your favorite plantain recipe? I don't really like plantains. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I don't really like tostones. I don't really like mofongo. I'm, 
I don't know. Tell I us just... what mofongo is. I've read about mofongo that. is a dish made of so there's mofongo, bifongo, and trifongo. It all depends. The mofongo is just the plantains that you fry and then you mash them with like chicharrones and like you know your seasonings or whatever. And then you they're sometimes it's served by itself. Sometimes it's served by itself with a cup of broth, which is the very traditional way because it has a tendency of being very dry. And sometimes it's served stuffed with like you know, chicken, stewed chicken, fried chicken, fried pork. I mean, they've getting all kinds of crazy over there. Now they have, you know, smother it in like this white kind of almost like an Alfredo sauce, you know, like this white garlic sauce, mayo ketchup. And then the beef fungo is when you use like two different tubers. So it can be like green plantain and yellow plantain because the yellow plantain is sweet or like yuca or yaltia and then those two together, which I, I like that one more because the, other tubers kind of add a softness to it. Now you say yucca, so I've been saying yucca all this time, and that's not correct. No. Okay, shame on me. So um, you can find that quite a few places too. What do you do with yucca? Um, most of the time, I just either boil it and then uh, simmer it in like this kind of vinegar, olive oil, and white onion kind of base. So it's almost like. It's like simmered olive oil, but it almost kind of have like a like a tangy, pickly kind of taste to it. That's my favorite way to do it. Oh, yum! I've made it into fries before. Yeah, those are good. But my <laughs> mom likes it just boiled in salt water, and uh, she likes it to eat it with her bacalao. What's so it's bacalao? Like a salad. Bacalao. The bacalao. Crawfish. That's that salted stuff that you don't know why. I where <laughs> she I've was like eating it so boiled much. with a yeah. little olive oil. So it's boiled. But with the bacalao, raw white onions, and then it's just garnished with olive oil. Mm, sounds good. It's like a salad. Okay, so we've talked about all sorts of things. So what's next on your plate, pun intended? I just came up with that just now. Pretty clever, huh? <laughs> what? Um, I don't really have anything planned. I mean, this book literally took like 10 years to come to life, so... I mean, I would love to do kind of like a, um, like a television show as a supplement to the book, you know, that focuses on the book focuses on the Diasporicans. And I mean, that's kind of why I wrote it. Like when we were talking about language, like yeah. most of the people that respond to me are like a couple people said, you know, is this going to be produced in English? And I'm like, it already is in English because they're so used to Puerto Rican cookbooks being, you know, published in Spanish, you know. And a lot of the other people that reach out to me, they don't speak Spanish either. So it's kind of like, it's very validating, you know, to have those people reach out to me. So I obviously know that the book focused on diasporicans. I would love to do a show that also focuses on the cuisine of the diaspora here. Because, you know, like I talk about in the book, there's like a restaurant that does like Chino Boricua food in Houston. You know, the people, the Puerto Rican diaspora in Hawaii. The hibarito people, the hibarito comes from Chicago. What's hibarito? The sandwich that you were talking about that oh, uses okay. two plantains. Oh, okay. That okay. comes from Chicago. Oh, oh, okay. Well, interesting. <laughs> uh, oh, I just thought of a question for you. It just went out of my head. Um, well, darn. Well, anyway, okay. So that's so, what's next to me. I'm trying to write a television show. Oh, there, there you go. Thank you. That's that's what we were talking about before I got sidetracked with the with the words. Um, yeah, television show. So that would be kind of a fun project, wouldn't it? It'd, It'd be, be a, a project. Yeah, it would be a project. It'll be a project. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, that just just like a six episode thing that just focuses on the diaspora. So 5.8 million people in here. Yeah. And then I would think that maybe the million people still in Puerto Rico would be interested in this as well. And I was surprised that they were interested. Like, I didn't do any events there on my book tour because I was just shy and embarrassed. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them reached out and said, why aren't you doing anything here? Why were you embarrassed? Because I don't speak Spanish. The thing oh. with Puerto Ricans is when you meet a Puerto Rican, they will automatically assume you speak Spanish because the gap between we haven't had the same immigration experience as everyone else where I don't think Puerto Ricans have felt forced to assimilate. They've just kind of built their own communities everywhere they go. And they're like, you know, this is it. That's it. So a lot of them, it's very rare to meet a Puerto Rican that does not speak Spanish. Okay. Well, the amount of times I have to say, I don't 
speak Spanish is horrifying. Oh, I'm sorry. That's <laughs> <laughs> not good. Uh, okay. Well, anyway, it sounds like... Now, do you think that the Puerto Rican food, because it is, it's, um, it's, rustic is not the word I'm going for. Hearty. It's hearty food. Yeah. Most well, of it's, it's workers' food. It's workers' food. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that it will ever be, um, you know, shifted into the the California cuisine mode, like the soul food chef that I mentioned, his, he didn't grow up with um, fried chicken and he's not going to make it. He gets all aggravated. People come into his restaurant and say, where's the fried chicken? I didn't grow up with fried chicken. I, you know, he, so he is not, he said he's not being, making his uh, California soul food. It's just how, what, what he grew up with. So do you feel like that maybe you will do some shifting to or just stick with what you know and what you did. Uh, I feel like my when I do my calorie cuisine, it already is much lighter. Like when I do my pop ups, like I don't just serve them traditional Puerto Rican food across the board because I know it can be very heavy, you know. So I've already adapted certain things, which is how I even came it became calorie Rican cuisine. You know, like when you go over there, the only salad that you see, you know, which I talk about in the book, is like a very sad looking salad you know because it's like limp pale lettuce limp pale tomatoes but that's because they're getting all that stuff imported and it's like poor quality by the time it like reaches them it's already like you know past its you know due date yeah so i will make a salad here like the same way with avocados and stuff but just with like heirloom tomatoes and like whatever citrus is in season and like a good quality local olive oil like those things are already I've already started to do. So I don't really necessarily need to make those things lighter. Whatever is the way that it is, is the way that it is. And whatever things that I've created in my own brain to adapt or what's going to be Cali-Rican. I'm not going to try to Cali-Ricanize Mofongo. Yeah. That would be a suicide mission. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But I can already, I can Californianize the avocado and tomato salad because we have great local avocados and tomatoes here. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So you just mentioned something about a pop up. I think we all want to know when the next one is and where. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. It's a lot of work. You have to, and finding the space has gotten, as the rents here get higher and higher, it's become more and more difficult. Well, that would that would do it. Okay, <laughs> all right. So I think we're ready. To, does anyone have questions? If you do, I'll come out there with the microphone. Okay, hang on. Here I come. No. I think you two know each other. We do. Yeah, I have a. I still have the original copy of your pre cookbook, cookbook. Yeah. Um. So on that note, we've known each other for almost ten years now, and I remember from the beginning you were very committed to your vision. And every step along the way, people pushed back against it. That agent that you had, publishers, people always said, yes, but do it our way. Do it this way. Do it any way but your way. And you always said, no, I'm going to see this through the way that I want to see it through, including like the swear words that you've got in there that piss some white lady off on Instagram. (laughs) And I've always really admired that you do things the way that you want, that your creative vision is what comes through and you don't bend that for anyone. But was there any point during this process where you were considering taking people's suggestions to do things their way instead of your way? And if so, how did you push through that to maintain your creative vision? Um, I think... Well, first of all, me being me, you know, I don't think that was ever going to not be a chance that I was me. But and I'm I'm happy and, and fortunate that I haven't really had to make that compromise. But it also has come at a cost. Like it's it's very fulfilling that I've been able to, to be me. But it's also been very isolating, you know. So I think at one point, like, there's, like, this famous chef that, you know, everybody knows. I'm not even going to say his name. But he was like you need a total rebrand. Like you need to change your name from eat gorda eat because nobody wants to see the word gorda because you know, like it's a, it's a bad word, you know, because it means fat and chubby. You, you know, now you're going to be Cali Rican cooks. Like, you know, here's a new Instagram I created for you. Blah, 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 blah. Like, okay. And I think for like a brief second, I was like, okay, maybe I do need a rebrand because you know, you've been, 
you know, in this industry on TV for so long, you know, maybe you know what's right. But then I talked to Steve Sando from Rancho Gordo and he was like, that guy doesn't know shit. Like, don't take his advice. Like, you and I, we're a part of like, you know, a super weird kind of cult club and only a few people are going to understand us. But the few people who are going to understand us is what's going to make or break our career. So, you know, like he's like, when I started doing the bean thing, people were like, why does this white man want to make beans? Like, and now, you know, people are like clamoring to get in his freaking bean club. Like, who would have thought Like, people were, you know, going to go nuts to subscribe to a bean club, you know? Me. (laughs) (laughs) He has great beans. So I I ended up taking his advice because it was just more sound than the other guy's advice, you know? Yeah. Well, it's what resonates with you that that counts. You have to be yeah. true to yourself. Well, Steve and I are much more alike than the other guy that was giving me advice. So I was like, eh, maybe not. It, okay. Hi, I have a question. Uh, you talked about uh, traditional Puerto Rican recipes in here, but have you added some of your Calorican recipes in here also? Yeah. And, and then my second question is, what about tortillas? Do you, do the Puerto Rican people eat many no. tortillas? No, we don't eat tortillas. Huh. And that's uh, hence the the not uh, no corn grown there. Um, well, I mean, there are still parts of Mexico that eat flour tortillas, like sobrequesas. So that's a flour tortilla, you know, from Sonora. So not all tortillas in Mexico are even corn, you know. But I just don't think that. I'm not really sure, you know, how that really came to be, but. When they did get a hold of corn, I think they were like, let's fry it. But the frying aspect comes from Africans, like directly from Africans. Like, I don't think that the Tainos were thinking about any of that stuff because they were just kind of, I mean, in a way, there's this thing that is kind of like a tortilla almost, but it's like an arepa, which is like a thick corn disc, you know, but it's not eaten like a tortilla. It's eaten by itself or it's stuffed and it's cooked over like this thing called a buren, which is like this big flat top. That's fueled by like coconut and wood fire. That's like the only really thing that's kind of similar to maybe like a tortilla, which would be like a gordita. I don't know. Anyways, it's complicated. <laughs> that leads me to my next question, and then I'm, I'll get the microphone back. How did the African uh, slave trade and the whole history behind Puerto Rico affect the indigenous Puerto Rican food? Um, I think it obviously altered it a lot because most of the things that we consume, most of the produce that we consume is from Africa. Like, almost everything. Like, yautia, plantains, yuca, rice. And, you know, Puerto Rico is such a big rice culture, you know, and that's what's so bizarre about the corn thing is that, you know, and the corn's not really that big, but rice is huge. And I mean, I think in the beginning, even before the Africans got there, they had the Spanish brought a little bit of the rice, thinking that the Tainos, because they were already so well versed in agriculture, that they would be able to grow rice too. But the Tainos were like, we don't know what to do with this, you know? But when, when they brought the Africans there, they're like, bet, we know what to do with this. And that's how it took off, you know? But almost. All of the produce that is eaten in Puerto Rico is directly from Africa. So I don't even think that Puerto Rican cuisine would even really be what it is without African. If the default go-to American dish is burger and fries, what's the Puerto Rican equivalent? And please don't say a Big Mac. <laughs> fast food is, has really taken off in Puerto Rico, though. Like, So there's fast food everywhere. Um, I think maybe the equivalent to burgers and fries in Puerto Rico, I don't know. That's hard to say, like rice and beans. Rice and beans is eaten every day for every meal. Like, even if your family's too poor to like afford like, you know, a lot of meat, you're guaranteed rice and beans every day. Well, don't we all wish that the fast food would be replaced with rice and beans? Everybody would be a lot healthier. I saw a I actually have a couple of questions and by the way. Big fan, been following you a long time. I wish your mom was here. So please, your hug. She's not here. I know. I didn't see her, <laughs> and I was like, I'd be fangirl- fangirling next to her. Um, one of the questions I have is, what recipe in 
represents for you like the best of your grandmothers that reminds you of your grandmothers and for you just embodies like Puerto Rico for you. And yeah, it might be a big Mi'kmaq. It might be something else. I don't know. But like what for you, just like I eat this and I just I just think of my grandma and I think of like where where she came from. Um, I think it's there are two dishes. So one is um, her cornbread and salami dressing which is weird because that's kind of like a Calurican dish that, you know, she didn't mix dressing or stuffing before she came here. And she just saw salami and was like, okay, that's meat sausage. Let's just put it in there, you know? So, and I haven't eaten it anywhere else. Like it's a very, I don't even know anybody who else makes it. So it's like a very her thing. And now my mom makes it too. And now I make it. Um, and then the other one would be bacalaitos because, I know that she learned from my grandma, even though she didn't, my great grandma, even though she didn't spend a lot of time, my great grandma, because they sent her away at a very young age. But I really haven't seen, I hadn't seen anybody else make bacalaitos the way my grandma did until I saw my great grandma make it. And they hadn't spoken in like 40 years. And yet they were still connected by the food, you know, like, and I really haven't seen anybody make bacalaitos the way that those two do. So when I do find a bacalaito that's like that, it reminds me of the both of them. And I was fortunate enough to meet my great grandma. So that's really beautiful. And then my last one is: Do you feel like right now there is, and I'm going to be very polite, say there's a renaissance of cookbooks from other cultures? So like for me, I'm Mexican, and so when I see books of Mexican recipes in English so I can help with my children who are bilingual and it's like okay we understand this but we don't understand certain things do you feel like right now there's a moment where people are wanting to learn more about our cultures and learn more about other people in general to see like this is a moment where we can find out hey Sazon you can get that at Safeway or Casa Lucas or wherever where people are super are more curious than they were back in 2008 would you say um no I think that People have always been curious about those types of things. I think the moment applies to the the gatekeepers, like the people in publishing, who are finally listening to those voices and being able to put them out in the world where people can access those voices. Clearly, people have always been enamored with other cultures' food because otherwise, why the fuck would tacos be so common? You know, people... Hello, Taco Tuesday. Like, there ain't no mofongo Wednesdays. You know what I mean? Like, there's no freaking... You know, African food Thursdays, like, it's just Taco Tuesday. That's it. So that need has has already been going on for a long time, way before 2020, way before 2008. It's just the only thing that's changed is the publishing industry, magazines, books, and all that stuff have been able to have that moment. And it is a moment. It's not a movement. It's just a moment where they're putting those voices out into the world because they're, they know that for a long time, I feel I feel like when they said there's no market for it, I really felt like they were really kind of being um, kind of rude to their customers almost. Like they were treating them like they were dumb. I'm like, why are you saying there's no market for it? Like you clearly don't understand the, dem- the people out here are your customers because they definitely want these books. You're just not giving it to them for whatever reason, you know? So, so I hope you can help me with the dilemma. My wife can't eat cilantro. I mean, it's just... She freaks out. I was raised on bland Jewish food. I can't eat anything spicy. <laughs> so the next time we're invited to a Puerto Rican restaurant, are we out of luck or is there something you'd recommend? Well, the good news is Puerto Rican food is not spicy. There's no spice in it at all except for maybe pique, which is like a hot sauce that you add to it. But in cooking, there's no spice. I think a lot of people associate spicy like, oh, the food has to be spicy for it to be flavorful. Puerto Rican food is flavorful, but it's not spicy. I feel personally, as far as cilantro goes, I feel like if you went to a Puerto Rican restaurant and you ate it because cilantro is really only in sofrito, I don't even think you'll know what's there. I'm going to be honest with you because I don't like green bell peppers. Like, I don't. No, I don't like that. But I put them in my sofrito. And by the time everything kind of cooks down and like melts and kind of mellows out and stuff like that, you don't you can't really taste everything individually it just becomes layers of flavor rather than just like itemized things great questions everyone so uh we're coming to the end of this great program thank you so much so our thanks to iliana masonette for her comments here today we also 
thank our audience here as well as those listening online. And now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating the 120th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned. And there's food out here, and be sure to buy her wonderful book. Thank you all. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.